Our Heavenly Father, indeed, where else have we to go when you alone have the words of eternal life? And so we pray that as we consider your word now in Psalm 3, that, Lord, indeed, we would be learning afresh as your people the security that you have granted us, the love that you have shown us in your Son, that we would never abandon it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do be seated. Do turn your Bibles back open to Psalm 3 that we're looking at uh, this morning. Just keep your finger in there. Come back to that in a bit. And as usual, there is an outline uh, in the bulletin, and you're welcome to use that to make notes. Trusting a promise of hope when all seems lost. Trusting a promise of hope when all seems lost. A few years ago, I had to prepare for my first trip to China. And being my usual disorganized self, I waited to the very, very last minute to sort out the visa that I needed to get into that country. You see, uh, like a British national, not blessed like many of our Malaysians here, uh, don't get a visa on arrival for China, at least we didn't back then, maybe you do now. And so uh, uh, I, I waited the last minute uh, to get the all-important visa. Uh, I looked up where the Chinese embassy was, thought, oh great, it's just downtown, it's on Jelenampang, or at least it was, with the Bank of China, so uh, I can go down there, and they, get, they have a, a same-day service, and it's great, it's Chinese efficiency for you, you put your forms in in the morning, and you'll get the visa back in the afternoon. So I thought, oh, okay, it's fine, I, I, it's only Friday, I'm, I'm flying out to uh, China on Sunday, uh, so I can go down now, plenty of time, and I can get the visa. So I went down to the visa office, and I walked in, and again, Chinese efficiency, they had that lovely pamphlet right there. These are all the things that you need to get your visa. And I looked at the list, uh, you know, passport, yeah, great, of course I brought that. Uh, the address of your uh, family that you'll be staying with in China, and I did have that with me. And then there was the third one, printed flight booking. Ah, oh, didn't have that one. Well, it's okay. I mean, it's only Friday and I'm flying on Sunday. I'll just come back tomorrow and get my visa then. I rely on that same-day service. And then I look up on the door and, of course, it says in black and white, we are closed on Saturdays. And it dawned on me, if I didn't get my visa that day, if I didn't get the forms in that morning, I wasn't going to be going to China. So I made a desperate call to my friend Chris, and, and he really kindly promised to say, so, okay, Tim, I'll get into your email, and I'll print off uh, that air booking that you need, and I'll come down in person, and I will hand it to you. You'll get your visa. He gave me that promise. And so I waited in the queue toward the booth, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. Time was running out. The queue was getting shorter. And shorter, I was stepping closer and closer to the agent. And if I hadn't got the, my forms in by midday, it was all over. I was really, really nervous. Closer and closer. And when I got to about four people from uh, the desk, and, and my friend Chris still hadn't arrived, I, you know, the, the sweat started coming out. I started grumbling, God, why is this happening to me? And of course, you can imagine that little voice saying, well, it's, Tim, it's because you're a disorganized idiot and you didn't actually sort out your visa. 
And just when I'm two people away from the desk, Chris bursts into the room. He has the air booking in his hand and he puts it in my hand and says, there you go, Tim, you're okay. And he saves the day. He was faithful to his promise, but it wasn't easy relying and just waiting, trusting that that would come through for me. Now, I'm sure you're far more organized and responsible than I am. Yeah, I imagine there may have been times in your life when you've had to simply depend on the promise of a friend or a colleague to get you out of a really tight spot, full of painful uncertainty about whether will they really deliver, will we get through? Well, in this psalm, Psalm 3 this morning, David, the the king of God's people Israel, he writes about one of the most vulnerable times in his reign as God's king. In fact, we just see that. Just have a look. Just before verse 1, you see that heading, that superscript in caps. That's part of God's word. And we read there, a psalm of David. This is David the king here. And this is his first lament in the book of Psalms. It's a cry to God for his deliverance as every other defense around him fails. All he can do in this psalm is trust God's promise to him as king that all will be well in the end. And so to really appreciate actually the words of this psalm, we need to know a bit of the backstory. Why is David suffering so greatly here? What is the crisis behind this psalm? And we're told where to look actually in the rest of the heading. You see that? A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to start in 2 Samuel. Don't worry, all the verses are going to go up on the screen. You don't have to do a lot of flicking today. But we're going to start in 2 Samuel, when David fled from Absalom, his son. All right, now, uh, as for the backstory, back in 2 Samuel 12, we have the tragic account of David's sin when he slept with another man's wife, you remember Bathsheba, uh, the wife of Uriah, his servant. And when Bathsheba fell pregnant uh, as a result, David desperately tries to cover his tracks. And that eventually leads to him having Uriah, that wife's husband, killed by his command. And he thought he had got away with it. But of course, God saw it all and he was not pleased with his king. And he sends Nathan, the prophet, to rebuke David and explain the consequences for his adultery and his murder. Nathan tells him in 2 Samuel 12 that basically great violence is now going to arise in your house, in your family. One of your own flesh and blood are going to turn against you, David, and they will try to steal your throne. Dark days ahead for David, but God also promised David mercy. That his sin had been put away, he would not die for what he had done. He, God would remain faithful to David as his chosen king. And it's not long before that promise of discipline for David begins to take shape. In, in 2 Samuel 13, David's son Amnon, now he is a real scoundrel, this Amnon. He rapes his stepsister Tamar, the, the sister of his stepbrother Absalom. And Tamar, having been violated, she confides in her brother Absalom, tells uh, tells him what Amnon has done. And Absalom is furious with Amnon. But he doesn't react in the moment. 
He knows revenge is a dish best served cold, and so he waits for two years, plotting his revenge. He convinces eventually David, his father, to let Amnon join him on a, on a scouting expedition far away from the safety of home. And once on that expedition, Absalom tells his servants, with Amnon in tow, see what he tells them, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you, be courageous and valiant. And they were. They struck Amnon dead according to Absalom's command. And David, the king back in Jerusalem, he gets the news that his son Amnon has been murdered by his other son Absalom for the rape of Tamar. Just as Nathan foretold, great violence is arising in David's own house. But it's going to get much worse. See, Absalom flees from his father back in Jerusalem, escapes any punishment there and then. But as the years go by, David really misses Absalom, his son. So after three years, his friend Joab convinces David, bring him back, bring him back to yourself. And David agrees, but there was one condition. Have a look. The king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom is allowed to come back, but he is not allowed to come into the presence of the king to see his father. He still bears disgrace in Jerusalem for several more years, and he gets anxious. He gets frustrated. Temperatures start to rise, and he, he calls for Joab, David's friend, uh, to request an audience with his father. But Joab doesn't come. And so he tells his servants, go and destroy Joab's fields. That'll get his attention. And it did. Drab comes running, alarmed that his crops have been destroyed. Uh, he speaks of Absalom. Why have you done this thing? He says, well, I called you. I want to see my father now. And uh, uh, Joab reluctantly agrees. And as Absalom finally comes into the presence of David, his father, again, it's actually quite a sweet reunion. He came into the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. You know, it looks like wounds are healing and reconciliation is taking place in David's house, but no, this only adds to the horror of what happens next. 2 Samuel 15, Absalom secretly plots mutiny against David, his father, the king. Uh, you see, through his servants, he secretly, quietly persuades many influential men in Israel to put their faith in him. Come to me with your disputes. Rely on my re re leadership. Ignore David, my father, the king. And his scheme works. Coming up in 2 Samuel 15, 6. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And once he had built up a big enough support base, he goes to Hebron, the place where David had been anointed, declared to be God's king for his people, and he sends messengers throughout all of Israel quietly again to spread the lie. 2 Samuel 15, 10, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. It's all taken place without David's knowledge to this point, but eventually he hears the lie. But it's too late. Absalom has been declared king and many have gone across to his side and David knows he has to flee. He goes on the run for his life. And that's where we pick up Psalm 3. First, as we see David's cry as he flees Jerusalem as the king, now on the run. Come with me to Psalm 3 and let's read from verse 1. 
O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. You know, a coup d'etat does wonders for revealing true loyalties, doesn't it? You know, whether the king really had the hearts and minds of his so-called loyal citizens. And David quickly saw how many of his own people were turning away from him in love for his son, who had set himself up as king. They had turned their hearts to Absalom, and they were out for David's blood. And yet there's one traitor in particular that causes David the most concern by far here in 2 Samuel. As he's running out of Jerusalem, running away from the city, he has to climb the Mount of Olives. That's part of his escape route. And just as he's climbing, David receives the worst news yet as he's on the run for his life. Here, 2 Samuel 15, 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Now this is really bad news. Not just because I have to pronounce this guy's name for the rest of the sermon, but this guy Ahithophel, he was one of David's most able advisors. You see what we're told later in 2 Samuel 17? Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed. David had relied on this man's wise counsel in the past. And so he knew David's strengths. He knew David's weaknesses. He knew David really well. So for this guy, Ahithophel, to go across to Absalom's side now, at the most vulnerable point of David's reign, th- this is like Tim Rice the CEO of Apple, just months before they're coming out with a secret new product. Uh, This is like Tim Rice going across to Microsoft, selling himself out to Bill Gates and giving them all the dirty secrets so that Microsoft can replicate it in time. Perish the fort. Sorry, Tim. Or for the football fanatics amongst us, this is like we're just coming up to uh, a seriously important cup final between Arsenal and Liverpool, and Olivier Giroud makes a terrible error. Just weeks before the game, he leaves the glory of Arsenal FC, and he goes across to the shame of Liverpool, (laughs) and shares with them all of Arsenal's secret strategies for the match. Crisis. And so with this Ahithophel, who was closest to David, his closest counselor, now turns traitor. And David knew this guy, this guy had the knowledge to bring David down, to bring David to an end. And Ahithophel, he doesn't waste any time aiding Absalom against his father. He tells Absalom, uh, first of all, go and sleep with your, your father's wives, the king's concubines, on the roof of the palace in the sight of all the people. Everyone can see. And Absalom did that vulgar act, and it was a strong statement. His way of saying to all of Israel, David, my father, your previous king, he's good as dead. His wives belong to me now. And that's what so many in Israel believed. See verse 2 in our psalm. David continues, Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. David is seen by his own people to be cursed. He's a dead man walking even as far as God is concerned. 
And yet at this most vulnerable point in David's reign, it gives him an opportunity to remember his true security as God's king, his basic comfort far above the love and popularity that his own people had shown before, David's comfort. Verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David resolves to trust in the Lord's faithfulness as so many who he once counted on turn against him, he knew that God would be his shield as every physical defense, as every ally. But a few give way because God had promised David, you will not die for your sin. David knew he was still God's chosen king. His throne would endure. And so what does he do in verse 4? Have a look. He calls out to the Lord. I cried aloud to the Lord. And back in the story of 2 Samuel at this point, there's only one prayer. There's one cry that we see on the lips of David as he is fleeing from Jerusalem. And it's this one. O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's David's cry. For God to deliver him from the threat of this traitor who could otherwise destroy him. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And God did answer David's prayer from his holy hill. Coming up. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, the holy hill, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him. David said to him, return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. This Hushai was God's answer to David's prayer, to David's cry. A loyal counselor who happens to just meet him on the Mount of Olives, on the holy hill, as David cried out to God. And this loyal counselor, who still loves David, who still counts David as the king, can compete with Ahithophel in the king's court, in Absalom's court. Persuade him, don't listen to Ahithophel's advice that David might be delivered. And we see that advice that Ahithophel has already started giving to Absalom to bring about David's demise. If we look at the next verse, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I'll come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. This was Ahithophel's plot that he was trying to convince Absalom to buy into. Let's get David now while he's on the run, while he's weak, while he's weary, before he can get his reinforcements. And, and if the king had listened, that would have been it for David. He would have been as good as dead. But Hushai was there in the king's council as well. And the king asks Hushai, well, what do you think? And of course, Hushai disagrees in the strongest possible terms. This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you. Hushai tells Absalom, no, let's not go and get David now while he's on the run. Let's wait. Let's get all of Israel behind you. You get a big army together and then we'll go and we'll defeat David. Wait till all of Israel is with you. Basically, Hushai knows what he's doing. He's buying David precious time to escape. 
because David is still very vulnerable at this point. He sends secret word to David. Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. And having received that all-important news, David crosses the river Jordan whilst on the run that very night rather than staying on the side of the city. And he escapes Absalom's clutches. Ahithophel's advice, it comes to nothing. And why? For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. This traitor, this one who was once a loyal advisor to David, but then turned on him, he, he leaves in disgrace because the king in Absalom hasn't followed his advice. And so he returns to his homeland, he puts his affairs in order, and then he takes his own life in shame. But David's experience couldn't be more different. You see verse 5 of Psalm 3? Verse 5, David can say in the midst of this trial, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. David was able to get a precious night's sleep in safety so that he's refreshed, he's still alive, and he's able to face Absalom. He has a renewed confidence because the Lord has sustained his king. Verse 6, David's confidence, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I mean, David and his men, they were still facing a great army in Absalom. Thousands of men had gone across to him and they were coming against David for the final showdown. His own side was far smaller, his servants still with him. Faithful, but few in number. And see what David says in verse 6? I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. Because he knew God's promise was reliable. Just as he had been shielded from death the previous night, so he could trust the Lord would deliver his king no matter what, no matter how dark the days were ahead of him. And so David cries out again, Arise, O Lord, Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And this victory of the Lord that David entrusts himself to here, it soon comes to pass. The army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. David's smaller number overcoming that great army because God was faithful to his promise to his king. David did not die. The throne was restored to him. And as for all those who ridiculed him, all those who turned traitor, they come back to David in shame and they beg his forgiveness, which he grants. And so as David reflects on this very troublesome and dark period in his reign, he just comes to this simple but profound conclusion Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. God's hand in Hushai had shielded David from the deadly counsel of Epiphophel, given him that night's rest that he needed. God's hand through David's smaller band of servants had delivered him from the greater army of Absalom. Through this hardship, David was able to see afresh that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so he prays to God, verse 8, your blessing be upon your people. Well, today we know the greatness of God's salvation, not through God's dealings with 
his king in David, but through the trial and the triumph of God's greatest king. Uh, The king to whom David in this psalm points forward, whose birth we're going to be remembering this coming Friday. When God himself came into our world that first Christmas morning in the person of his son, our Lord Jesus, and came to fulfill every promise of salvation that God had made to his people. But like David, Jesus was rejected, wasn't he? By so many. Uh, Religious leaders who refused to recognize his authority, Gentile rulers like Pilate who washed his hands of Jesus, even his own disciples who abandoned Jesus in the hour of his greatest need. And yet Jesus faced a far greater anguish than the rejection of those he came to save. See, even as David suffered in this psalm, he was sure God would deliver him from death. He had that promise. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. But for Jesus, he knew that for him to be our king, he would have to endure death itself as he tasted it for each one of us. As he bore our curse for all the ways in which we've denied God as our God for our mutiny. The mutiny that I know I've committed in failing to honor God as my Lord, in failing to love my neighbor as he commands, in saying I'm going to be the God of my own life. That mutiny that Jesus knew he would go to the cross to die for, to pay for. Remember our New Testament reading in Luke 22. On the Mount of Olives where we see Jesus in sheer anguish as he cries out to God just as David did in this psalm. Again, on the Mount of Olives, he cried out for deliverance praying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The cup of God's wrath against all our sin. And the thought of it was so painful what he had to endure that we're told being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. But just as God comforted David as he frustrated the counsel of Epiphaphel as he gave him that precious rest he needed so God the Father comforted his son. As Jesus cried out to him we're told in Luke twenty-two forty-three. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Just as David resolved to entrust himself to God, rooting his confidence in his will, so Jesus prayed, even here, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus was faithful to his Father to the bitter end. He was confident that even as he endured death, the death that we deserve for sin, God would not abandon his king to the grave. And we know that salvation belongs to the Lord today because God did not. He raised Jesus to new life three days after the cross, proof that Jesus is God's king and savior for us, that his words were true, the one who conquered death on our behalf and then rose from the grave exalted in glory, salvation belongs to the Lord in Jesus, our King. And one day he will bring that salvation to our world in every way. Uh, We see in Revelation 19, uh, the last words of Psalm 3 repeated again. On the lips of us, his people, 
Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to the Lord our God for his judgments are just and true. This is what Jesus will bring about when he returns. As he deals with all that is wicked, all that is corrupt, all that needs salvation in the end. He destroys the tyranny of sin and death and brings us into his kingdom where we can know through him eternal rest from all our sorrows. See, both in Psalm 3, in Jesus who fulfills it, we see this lesson. God's salvation is and always will be with his king. With him and him alone we are secure, no no matter what. Three ways for us to respond. Firstly and most importantly, bow to Jesus your king. See, so many refuse to to bow to David as God's king. During this dark and vulnerable time of his reign, he seemed pathetic, didn't he? He had to abandon his throne, on the run with only a few men to aid him, and so many today dismiss God's king for our world in Jesus. It's Christmas time. Society around us is celebrating for some reason. The malls are full of presents. Starbucks has got its special minty, frosty beverages. Not that good, by the way, but you can try it. But the reason for the season, the reason that we can truly celebrate Christmas, Jesus, and the salvation that God brings through him, I hardly hear it mentioned. I was just listening to the radio yesterday. I was driving in the car, and the message was, right now, it's the month of family, friends, and presents. And the most important gift of God's Son, our Savior, Jesus, the reason we celebrate Christmas, it's not even mentioned. The mantra of Christmas now is do good and you'll get rewards. Not receive Jesus born that first Christmas morning and be secure in him. What about us? Will we recognize the reason, the real reason we can celebrate Christmas this week? Jesus, our King, The one who died the death that we deserve, that we might know the joys of his heaven. You know, our world might deny his kingship for now, but it won't be that way forever. He will return. God's given proof of that by raising his son from the dead. And none will stand against him on that final day and live. You know, we're all about security here in Malaysia, aren't we? We have insurance for so many things. We have medical insurance in case we get sick. We have house insurance in case we get robbed. We have travel insurance in case AirAsia loses our bags for the umpteenth time. Well, friends, let me ask you, what is your insurance in death? What is your insurance for the day that you die? Because you may not get sick and you may not be robbed. Uh, you may, and it might be that AirAsia finally managed not to lose your bags, but one in one of us will die and face God for the ways in which we've lived. That is certain. Friends, submit to Jesus. Know the security of sins forgiven that he alone offers of eternal life even in the face of death. Get on his side. And if you're still not sure, uh, get to the mini guest nights that we're going to be running in the new year. There are pamphlets over there with more information. You want to look into the evidence for Jesus' claims that he is God's king and savior for us. Join us as we look more in his gospel and we see the truth. 
Well, for, us, or for those of us who are already rejoicing in the salvation that Jesus does bring, who have bowed the knee to him, the lesson is remain with Jesus as king. He's still waiting for that future day to dawn, aren't we, when sin and death will be no more. We still live in dark and dangerous times in a fallen world that denies Jesus as king and encourages us in this society to live for anything and anyone but him. Don't be like Israel in this psalm, turning their backs on their true king, like Epiphophel, who abandoned David because it looked like Absalom was a stronger side for a moment. God's salvation is and always will be with his king and no one else. Epiphel's betrayal, it ended in disaster. Don't exchange Jesus for anything our world prizes in the here and now. Don't forsake him for wealth. Don't forsake him for pleasure, for family, for anything. Keep Jesus where he belongs, on the throne of your hearts. Keep his word as your hope and your rule in this coming 2016 as the one who alone has the words of eternal life. And so plan to know this word, to believe it, to obey it, to show yourself to be one who belongs to God's king. Because God will never abandon his king. God will never abandon those who belong to his king those who show that through faith and obedience to him. And that just brings us to this final point because we know dark days may well be ahead for us as Christians. Endure with Jesus as your king. You see, we saw in Psalm 3, didn't we? David learnt God's faithfulness in a way that he couldn't have if he didn't go through the dark days of his reign, if he didn't face the trials, having to simply rely on God's promise that he would not die when every other defense gave way and everything else said he would. Now, we aren't King David, friends. God hasn't promised us an earthly throne or that we will live to an old age, but he has promised to every one of us who are in Christ, even on the darkest of our days, God can and use our every situation to grow us in our faith, in our dependence on him, when all other securities give way those events that teach us we're not in as much control as we'd like to think. But we can trust that God is working in his providence to shape us more and more as his people, even in the dark times, even in the trials. I want to share with you an encouraging example as we close from one of our own uh, church families. They've given me permission to share this with you, and I was so encouraged by it as I saw this Uh, then put this up last week. Uh, They have had the joy, but the very real hardship of parenting their young son who suffers from behavioral difficulties. And this is what uh, they wrote. Our journey with our son is one filled with constant questions, bewilderment, uncertainty, and great fear. At the same time, it's very humbling We learn that we have very little control over our children despite what we know and try to do. We can be resourceful, knowledgeable, determined, but that's not all it takes. We cannot figure it all out. In those dark days, we learn to simply trust God and pray. We cannot shoulder all the weight ourselves, and thankfully, we are not meant to. Our helplessness allows us to experience God's mercy and grace every step of the way. It shows us that God is ruling over all things, and he knows what he's doing with our lives. At every moment, he is actively involved. We are not alone in this. 
Praise God. He's used a hard trial in the life of this family to show forth his faithfulness and grace, to help this family grow in their faith in him that will one day give rise to eternal life as they persevere with Christ as their king and their security. Praise God that no matter what we face tomorrow, we are secure even in the face of death with Christ our Lord because God delivered his king Jesus is risen and we have that certain same hope of life. We can trust in him and so live for him this day. And like David, we can declare with joy as God's people the words of this psalm. Salvation belongs to our God. So let's stand and let's declare these words to one another. Salvation belongs to our God.